Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Well, welcome to our daily devotional for June the 22nd. So, if you will recall, <coughs> our daily devotional is divided into two distinct segments. We have a verse of the day segment, and we have our through the Bible in one year segment. So our verse of the day for June twenty second comes from Proverbs chapter nine verse ten, which says the fear of the Lord is the foundation of knowledge or excuse me, foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results, and knowledge of the Holy One, excuse me, results in good judgment. So, in order to understand that, we gotta back up, and we're gonna start in verse seven of Proverbs chapter nine, which says, "Whoever corrects a mocker invites insults." Whoever <coughs> The wicked incurs, incurs abuse. Do not rebuke mockers or they will hate you. Rebuke the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be wiser still. Teach the righteous and they will add to their learning. So now we come to the last verse, which is verse 10, which says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The question you gotta ask yourself about all of this is are you a mocker or are you a wise person? So you can tell which one you are by the way that you respond to criticism. Because you see, instead of replying with a quick put down or a clever retort when rebuked, you need to listen to what is said, being said and learn from your critics. Because you see, that is the path to wisdom. And you see, wisdom begins with knowing God. Because you see, he gives you insight into living because he created life. And so, in order for you to know God, you must not just know the facts about him, but you must have a personal relationship with him. So the ultimate question you have to ask is, do you really want to be wise? And if the answer to that is yes, then you need to get to know God better and better. Because that is how you truly get to be wise. So the Bible reading that you should have done for June the 22nd are Second Kings chapter 3 verse 1 through chapter 4 verse 17, Acts chapter 14 verses 8 through 28, <coughs> Psalm 140 verses 1 through 13, and Proverbs 17, 22.
so that concludes our verse of the day segment for June the 22nd. And so now we are going to move into our through the Bible in one year segment for June the 22nd. So if you will recall, we have finished on chapter 17, which ends Jesus' upper room discourse. So now we have moved into John chapter 18, which is the beginning of John's passion story, or his passion narrative of Jesus. So what we saw on June the 21st was we saw the first of the four scenes that John uses to tell this passion story of Jesus. And you see this first scene takes place in a garden on the other side of the Kidron Valley. So it is during this first scene that Jesus is arrested and he is brought to the home of Annas, the father-in-law of the high priest for that year, Caiaphas, which then brings us <coughs> to the second scene that we're going to see today. So the second scene that we're going to see today, right? So and it is in this second scene that we see two different interrogations. But that's what this second scene is all about. It's all about Jesus being interrogated by Amos. And we see Peter being interrogated by those who have gathered outside the home of Amos. But we also see two different reactions to being interrogated. So what we see is we see Jesus being truthful, open, and honest with his interrogators. And we see Peter being fearful, secretive, and dishonest with his interrogators. So this, by the way, this is day 171. And so we're going to be focusing on John, John, John chapter 18, verses 15 through 27. So if you have missed any of these segments, any of these segments at all, you can get caught back up with them by visiting upstatechristian.com. So we're going to pick up now in John chapter 18, verse 15, and we're going to go through verse 18, which says, <coughs> Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You weren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? she asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. So, 
seeing that another disciple accompanied Peter into the courtyard. So we see John does not identify who this disciple is or indicate how this disciple could have possibly known the high priest. But what's more important here is that when Peter was asked his identity by a mere servant girl, he crumbled in fear and he denied that he was a follower of Jesus. So what we then see is that Peter joined Jesus' enemies, warming himself by the fire they had made to keep themselves warm while they waited for the results of this interrogation of this first trial of this highly illegal and highly irregular trial that was taking place at night. <coughs> so it is important to note that it's important for us to note that Peter's three denials are recorded in all four Gospels. This is not just something that John mentioned. This is something that Matthew recorded, that Mark recorded, that Luke recorded. And then we see John recorded. So Peter's denials are in all four Gospels. So they are true. Peter actually did this. This is not just something that the Gospel writers made up. And so because they appeared in all four Gospels, they made a deep impression on the early church. And so what we are about to see in the next part of this scene will illustrate the huge difference between the way Peter handled being interrogated by his enemies and the way Jesus handled being interrogated by his enemies. So essentially what we've seen is we've seen Act 1 of Scene 2. Now we're going to see Act 2 of Scene 2. If we want to describe this like a play. So now we're going to pick up in verse 19. And we're going to go through verse 24. Which says, Meanwhile the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I have always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. <coughs> Excuse me. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So, Earlier in the Gospel, challenged by the Jewish rulers, that would be the priest, the high priest, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the very people that were now involved in his interrogation, in this interrogation.
altercation that has been going on. They had challenged him regarding his identity, but now they ask him about his teaching. They don't really care about who he said he is. They now only care about what he has been teaching. <coughs> so we see that Jesus then redirected their focus from the disciples because you see, he probably understood that as he should have understood, and as anybody in that situation would understand, if they're going after the teacher, they're going to go after the teacher's students, too. But it doesn't do any good if you just put the teacher down, but you don't put the students down. Also, because you see, the students will carry on where the teacher has left off. So Jesus redirected their focus from the disciples and said that he taught publicly for all to hear. So in other words, they already knew what he had been teaching about. They just chose to ignore it because it went contrary to what they wanted to believe. So what we also see here is that one of the one of the officials felt that Jesus was demonstrating disrespect to the former high priest. Interesting choice of words there, right? Former high priest. So again, he was only the former high priest because the Romans appointed a new high priest every year in order to keep control over the Jewish political system. Right? Because the high priest played an integral role in the Jewish culture and in Jewish and Jewish legal system and in the Jewish political system. So what we then see is that this official we're not told what kind of official. We're not told if he was a priest. We're not told if he was a Pharisee. We're not told if he was a Sadducee. I'm told what kind of official this was, but this official then slaps Jesus in the face, which is further evidence of the ruling class, the ruling elites of Jewish society failing to recognize the truth. So what we see here is that this scene, this act, act two, concluded and ascending Jesus to Caiaphas bound. By the way, this is the end of John's telling of <coughs> oh, excuse me. This is the end of John's telling of Jesus appearing before the Jewish officials. The rest of John's passion narrative is focused on Jesus' dealing with Roman officials and the Roman legal system. Uh, so John does not describe any interaction between Jesus and Caiaphas, just as we've already said. And perhaps he did this because he knew that his readers were well informed of Jesus' trial before Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin, which was illegal because it could not be conducted at night and it could not be conducted in secret. It was supposed to be done during the day and it was supposed to be done openly so that the accused could present witnesses on their behalf, but they did 
of those things because they were not interested in giving Jesus a fair hearing. They were more interested in shutting Jesus up and getting rid of Jesus. So they did this the quick and illegal way rather than the slow and right way but the quick and illegal way ultimately fulfilled God's purpose. Or it's more probable because the trial for Caiaphas and Sanhedrin was a foregone conclusion. The results were a foregone conclusion. They were going to find Jesus guilty of this crime. They were going to hand him over to the Roman government. So there was no need for this waste of words to elaborate. Matthew's already talked about, what Mark has already talked about, what Luke has already talked about. So there's no need to rehash old material. So we're gonna move on. So now let's turn our attention to the differences between Jesus and Peter. So in the opening act of this scene, which is Act 1, which is the first set of verses that we read, right? We saw Peter confronted by his enemies, who also happened to be Jesus' enemies. And what does Peter do? What does Peter do when he is confronted with these enemies? He vehemently denies that he knows Jesus. What does it say? What does it say that he said? Um, when the servant God asked him, aren't you one of this man's disciples too? You aren't one of these, uh, this, excuse me, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. I am not. I'm not a follower of him. I'm just here to see this trial. I'm just interested in seeing what happens to this crazy man. I'm not a follower of him. So what we also see, right? Is that the, is that at the same time that Peter is denying that he even knows Jesus, that he's even a follower of Jesus, he's essentially telling this servant girl, I'm just here to see what happens to this crazy person that's been arrested in Passover week, perhaps for breaking the Roman law, perhaps for not breaking the Roman law, don't really know, don't really care. See, when at the same time that Peter is denying Jesus, what is Jesus doing, right? So Jesus is boldly confronting his enemies with the truth and defending and protecting his disciples. In other words, Jesus responds to his interrogation in the completely opposite way that then Peter responds. So how the second So that says, meanwhile, 
how Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, aren't you one of his disciples too? Oh, excuse me, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Oh, and again Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. So we see as the earlier scene concerning Peter's identity is repeated. So John here narrates Peter's second and third denials. And so before and after the accounts of Jesus' interrogations, or Peter's denials, so we see Peter's reaction, and we see Jesus' reaction, and then we see Peter's reaction again. Peter's reaction were both wrong, while Jesus' entire reaction was completely right. So John draws a stark contrast between Jesus' bravery and Peter's cowardice. Those standing by the fire again questioned Jesus about being one of Jesus' disciples, and again he firmly denies it. Peter denies the very thing that he had already told Jesus, I'm not going to do, but you see, Jesus already knew that old Peter was going to do it. So what we then see is a relative of Malchus, who is the man that Peter cut the ear off of, asked Peter if he had been in the garden when Jesus was arrested. So we then see this is the third confrontation, right, and it escalates the drama, because you see, Peter rightly denied to these people, hey, I don't know them, and they would know that he was lying. This man would know that Peter was lying, why, because Marcus would have said, hey, 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 that's the dude that cut my ear off, that's him, that's him right there, he's the dude that cut my ear off. He was with this man in that garden when we came and arrested him, and he cut my ear off, and Jesus healed my ear. So Peter, even though he denied it, was telling a lie now. So what we see is that as Peter denied Jesus a third time, a roaster crow. So when Peter did this, did Jesus' prophetic word about his denial cross his mind in that moment? Of course it probably did. In other, in the other three Gospels, we're told that at this point in time, Peter breaks down and weeps because he remembers that Jesus told him that before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times, and he did. And now all of a sudden, Peter realizes that, oh, I have really, really screwed up. But that's not the end of the story for Peter, right? Because you see, though Peter loved Jesus, he was not prepared for the intensity of this supernatural battle that was happening right now. This his battle between the forces of evil and the forces of darkness that wanted him to deny who Jesus was, to 
from the night he even knew Jesus. So that he would not suffer the same fate as Jesus. But you see, clearly the cowardice in the courtyard should be should be contrasted with the bravery that we see for the account of recounted in the early chapters of the book of Acts, which hopefully you have read already. If you've been following along with our written plan, you've already read the early chapters of Acts, and you've seen it completely, completely and he told 180, he went from being the exact opposite direction of what he should have been here to being completely forces in the book of Acts. So what we see there is the power of the resurrection was seen in this dramatic transformation of Peter. And so we're going to pick up from here tomorrow as we move into John the third scene, excuse me, of John's passion story or passion narrative of Jesus, which by the way is going to be Jesus' trial before Pilate. And in order for you be, to be ready to discuss that, here's what you need to read. What you need to read 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 18 through chapter 5, verse 27. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. Psalm 141, 1 through 10. And Proverbs 17, 23. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to our daily devotional for June the 23rd. So if you recall, our daily devotionals are divided into two two separate and distinct segments. We have our verse of the day segment. And we have our For the Bible in One Year segment. So our verse for June the 23rd comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, which say, Ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. So what is Jesus saying here? Because these are Jesus' words. Jesus said is encouraging perseverance in prayer. So we should notice that the tense of the Greek verbs in verse 8 which is the verse that says, For everyone who asks, receives, and the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened, right? <coughs> the tense of those verbs carries the meaning of action that keeps going on. So what exactly does that mean? So that means we must keep on asking, we must keep on seeking, and we must keep on knocking. So what does this not mean, right? So what does it not mean? This, mean? this does not mean to beg God to answer our prayers. Whether it means that instead of worrying about a certain issue, we take it to God, and we acknowledge that that situation that we have taken to God 
is in his hands. So when we say asking, what do we mean by that? So we mean that we recognize our need and that we trust God to hear our prayers. So when we say seeking, what do we mean by that? So that our request is earnest and that we are willing to obey God and to pursue his purposes when he responds with an answer or with instruction. So when we say knocking, what do we mean by that? So knocking is simply mean, simply means that we keep bringing the request to God, even when He does not respond quickly. So such active patience, which is one way to define the word perseverance, does not show a lack of faith, but rather a constant admission that we need God's help and have turned over our needs to him. And Christ's assurance to those who ask or receive from God is based on these five things. So the first thing it's based on is keeping our priorities focused on God and seeking his kingdom purposes first. That's the first thing, keeping our priorities focused on God and on seeking his kingdom. The second thing is recognizing God's fatherly love and goodness. And the third thing is praying according to God's will and keeping our desires in line with His. So the fourth thing is maintaining communication and friendship with Christ. And the fifth thing is obeying Christ. And the Bible reading that you need to do for June the 23rd are 2 Kings chapter 4 verse 18 through chapter 5 verse 27, Acts chapter 15 verses 1 through 35, Psalm 141 1 through 10, and Proverbs 17 verse 23. So that concludes our verse of the day segment for June the 23rd. So now we're going to move into our Through the Bible in One Year segment for June the 23rd, which is day 172 of this segment. So our focus for this segment is going to be on John chapter 18, verses 28 through 40. So if you want to get caught up with any of the previous segments, you can do that by visiting upstatechristian.com. Again, that is upstatechristian.com. So, so far, in our journey through John chapter 18, we have seen two of the four scenes in John's passion story of Jesus. So the first scene that we saw was Jesus' arrest, and it took place in a garden. It was located opposite of the Kidron Valley, right? So it was op- located opposite of the Kidron Valley, or across the Kidron Valley. So the second scene was Jesus' interrogation by Anna, and Jesus responded to the interrogation. But in that scene, we also saw how Peter 
hell being interrogated by those who were his enemies, which is what we discussed yesterday. So today we come to the third scene in John's passion story of Jesus, which is Jesus' trial before Pilate. So this scene takes place in the governor's palace in the city of Jerusalem and is by far the longest scene in the John's passion story of Jesus. So now we're going to pick up in John chapter 18 verse 28 and we're going to go through verse 32 to start off with. Which says, then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning. To avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. So again, Jesus' trial before Pilate is the longest John's passion narrative. So what we see here is that John notes that Jesus was sent to Caiaphas, but again there is no report on what happened there, because that's not really all that important. What is important is Jesus' trial before Pilate, because it's going to be Pilate that ultimately decides what's going to happen to Jesus, or Pilate thinks he's going to be the one that ultimately decides what happens to Jesus. Because we already know that what was going to happen was going to happen. There wasn't going to be no change in that. So what we now see is that Pilate is now brought into the drama without any introduction. We're not told who Pilate is. We're told he's the Roman governor. But we're not told how long he's been Roman governor. We're not told any other information about him other than the fact that he is excuse me, the Roman governor of the Roman province of Judea. So we then see that the Jews took Jesus to Pilate in the early morning. So in Christian history, in Western history, this day becomes known as Good Friday, right? And so, what we also see is that the Jewish leaders would not enter the Roman palace because they were concerned about becoming ceremonially unclean because the Romans ate things like pork and then other things that would make a Jewish person become ceremonially unclean, which would then have meant that they could not take place in the Passover celebrations or any other religious celebration, because they would have then been unclean.
so we can see that pilot went out to them. So I know that kind of sort of sounds weird for a Roman governor, the man who was considered to be all powerful within a Roman province, to go out and meet a bunch of non-Roman religious leaders. But it wasn't really anything weird, strange, and odd about that, because part of Pilate's job was not just to, to maintain Roman order and discipline within the province, in other words, to make, to make sure that the Jewish people followed the Roman laws, but part of his job was to keep the peace between the Romans that were living in Judea and the native Judeans or the Jewish people that were living in Judea and part of the way that he would do that would not be to not make these people become ceremonially unclean. So we also see that the Jewish leaders were appeared appeared to be intentionally invasive and provocative in their response to Pilate's question concerning Jesus' crime. Right? So what does it say? So what does Pilate say? Pilate says, what charges are you bringing against him? That's in verse 29. Then immediately after Pilate says that, here's what the Jewish leaders responded with. If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to him. So in other words, being invasive about what charges they want leveled against Jesus, because they don't really have a true crime to charge him with. They can't charge him with treason, because he's already told the Jewish people, give back to Caesar the things that should be given back to Caesar, and give back to God the things that belong to God. And no Roman governor is going to be able to make a treason charge stick for that, because he's not said overthrow the Roman government. No, 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 no. He said the complete exact opposite. So Pilate in turn wanted them to handle the matter according to their own laws. What are we talking about there, right? So that's Pilate's response to this evasiveness and this provocativeness, this uh, attempt to get Pilate to blindly and blandly just go along with the desire to kill Jesus for no apparent reason whatsoever. So here's what it says in verse 31, Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. So their response was, but we have no right to execute anyone, they object that verse, in the verse 31, right? So they, what we saw there was that they responded, they didn't have the legal right under Roman law to execute anyone, because the only people under Roman law who could pass the sentence upon a person was a Roman court, not a local court, not a court that enforced local laws and tradi traditions and customs, but a Roman court that enforced Roman laws. And there were certain things under Roman law that you could be executed for, and there were other things under Roman law that you could not be executed for. So what we should notice here is at the very last of verse says, 
This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Because you see, Jesus was to be going to die by crucifixion. The Roman method of execution, not stoning. The Jewish method of execution, because Jesus had to be hung on a tree so that he could be cursed, so he could take our curse upon himself. So we see that John is again bridging this gap between prophesied to happen and what actually did happen. So now we're going to pick up in verse 33 and we're going to go through verse 37. Which says, Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth who listens to me. So after Pilate had heard the Jewish leader's demands for Jesus' execution, Pilate then went back inside the palace for his first conversation with Jesus. So what we see here is that the theme of Jesus' kingship is introduced. So after Pilate asked Jesus a question, Jesus unexpectedly turned the tables on Pilate excuse me, and interrogated him, right? So, uh, so Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' response, is that your own idea? Or did others talk to you about that? Did others plant that idea into your head? Right? Um, so the, the conversation that follows reveals that Jesus' kingdom is a different kind of kingdom than Pilate had ever known, than the Jewish leaders had ever known, than anybody on this earth has ever known and will ever know until Jesus returns. Because you see, Kingdoms are defended by soldiers and fighting. But Jesus is a kingdom of the hearts and lives of his people. And what we need to see, what we need to understand from this crucial section of John's passion narrative, of his passion story, there are three points concerning the true nature and purpose of Christ's kingdom that we need to take note of. So the first point is, what is what Jesus' kingdom is not. So Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Jesus himself said that here, right? What does it say? It says, my kingdom is not of this world. Ooh. So 
Jesus' kingdom did not originate in this world. In its purpose, he did not take over this world's political system. So Jesus did not come to establish a political theocracy. So, hey, can you understand what a theocracy is? A theocracy is a government ruled by a religious body. Right? Particular view of God. Right, so that is what a theocracy is. Jesus didn't come to establish that. Or he came for world control. Jesus said if he had come to establish a complete kingdom on earth, then what does he say? He says, my servants would fight. So since this is not the nature of Jesus' kingdom, we do not resort to military war or revolution to promote Christ's purpose on earth. So, we do not align ourselves with political parties or social pressure groups or any other secular organizations in order to establish God's kingdom and purpose on earth. What we do align ourselves with is God's people who will stand to to fight with the right kind of weapons in order to establish, help establish God's kingdom here on earth. So we refuse to use our power gained through his, Jesus' victory on the cross. It's a proud attempt to rule society. So in other words, rather than using worldly weapons, we as Jesus' followers are armed only with spiritual weapons, and we see that in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church, right? Where he tells us to put on the whole armor of God. Anybody remember that? That comes in, um, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, which says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the form of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the form of God. Day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith, which can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert. And always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Those are the weapons that we must use as Christ followers. However, this does not mean that as Christians, as followers of Christ, we should avoid participating in government or social action because then we are still responsible to uphold God's demand for justice, His demand for peace, and His demand for restraints against lawlessness. 
and honorable lifestyles, we should change governments and societies regarding their moral responsibilities to God. So that is what Jesus the Kingdom is not. So now we come to the second point, what Jesus Kingdom is. So his kingdom, or the kingdom of God, involves his power, his authority, his purposes, and his spiritual activity in the lives of all who receive him and obey his word. So the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That comes from Romans chapter 15, verse 17. So, Christ's kingdom is an active battle against the spiritual forces of Satan using spiritual weapons that we already talked about in what Jesus' kingdom is not. Because we don't use the weapons of the world, we use our spiritual weapons. That's like spiritual battles, because we're not engaged in actual battle with the governments that quote-unquote rule them with evil the spiritual forces that want to destroy this world that don't want to see God's kingdom established at all. So the role of the church that is all of that is those of us who are followers of Christ because we are all part of the church instead of a servant of Jesus Christ, not that of a ruler over this present world. We don't rule this world. We serve Christ. So the church's strength is not in worldly power, but in the cross. So when we as God's people suffer rejection and persecution at the hands of the world, it is really an honor. Because we are identifying with Christ. So only by rejecting the world's power did the New Testament church fall. Did the New Testament church find God's power? And those of us that are Christ followers today, we face the same choice in our individual lives. Because only by losing our lives in the world, in other words, Giving up all of those things that make us, quote-unquote, part of the world, right? Will we find our highest purpose in God? That doesn't mean we completely cut ourselves off from the world and go live as monks someplace in some monastery where we never step foot in the world. But it means we are actively in the world, but we're not being part of the world. Taking part in the world system, we're trying to change the world system, we're trying to make the world system better. So that's the second thing we have to take note of. The third point we need to take note of is what Jesus' kingdom will be. So in the future, Christ's kingdom will reign in the new heaven and in the new earth. So this will occur. After Jesus returns to earth, 
following the period of tribulation to judge the nations, destroy the Antichrist, and reign on earth for a thousand years, which is when he will establish his perfect kingdom on earth, where everything that is wrong with this world will be made right. So he will then, at that point in time, bring Satan to a final end in the lake of fire. So now let's finish up this first act. This first act in this scene. Alright, so we're going to finish that up by moving into verses 38 through 40, which says this, What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews gathered there, and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And he shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in and up rising. So we see here that Pilate concluded his interrogation with a sarcastic question about truth. So we see that Pilate goes out to this crowd that is gathered, and he declares Jesus innocent. He then reminds them of the custom that a prisoner was to be released during the Passover celebration. And he went even further by assuming that the crowd would ask for Jesus. But, 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 the present crowd, which at this point in time consisted primarily of the Sanhedrin and their followers, because the hour is still early, we're still early on Good Friday morning. We're still early, 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 cried out for the revolutionary Bennett Barabbas to be released. They didn't want this man who was completely innocent of any crime to be released to them. Who had not plotted and attempted to make that plot come into action. So, in other words, Barabbas plotted to overthrow the Roman government. And not only did he plot to overthrow the Roman government, probably attempt to put that plot into motion so the Jewish people here would rather have had Barabbas to them than the innocent Jesus who had committed absolutely no crime whatsoever. So they wanted this man Barabbas who was a criminal who had already been condemned to die to be released to them. Because they would rather have the condemned criminal released than to have Jesus released. Because it would have vindicated to have Jesus released would have made their entire position unstable. And so that is where we will pick up tomorrow as we conclude this third scene in John's Passion Story. for that, here's what you need to read for tomorrow. 
beginning to read Second Kings chapter 6 and 7, ending to read Acts 15 verse 36 through 16 verse 15, Psalm 142, 1 through 7, and Proverbs 17, 24 through 25.